welcome to The Animated Journey, a podcast featuring interviews with animation professionals working in television, film, and games. I'm your host, Angela Ensminger, and I just want to say, man, I had a great weekend this past weekend. I had the opportunity to attend the Creative Talent Network Expo in beautiful Burbank, California at the Burbank Marriott Hotel, and grand fun was had by all. Had a wonderful time meeting fans of the podcast. I want to give a shout out to Fernanda and Nick. It was a pleasure meeting you and your family and friends. Thank you so much for listening to the show. I greatly appreciate it. And I also had the opportunity to meet many of the fine folks over at the Oatly Academy. So I just want to give a big shout out to Chris, Anya, Edge, Maria, and everyone else I met over there, over at the booth and also at the fire pit afterwards. Man, you guys are amazing. I'm really glad to be a part of that community. And for anyone who's looking to take online classes, I highly recommend joining the Oatly Academy. Not only will you learn a great deal of information, but everyone involved is super fun. And I met a lot of people who are exhibiting at the event who used to take classes over at the Oatly Academy. I feel like at least a fourth of the people at the convention were current or former Oatly Academy students. So anyone who's interested in learning more about digital art, storytelling, or just wants to listen to very, very good podcasts, I highly recommend Oatly Academy. The address is www.oatlyacademy.com. They're really great people. I look forward to seeing everyone again next year. And I had a lot of fun meeting new artists that I'd never talked to before, as well as saying hi to former podcast guests, as well as saying hello to future podcast guests. There are going to be a lot of really cool people on the podcast soon. You guys are going to love it. So it was great getting to meet all of them in person. And I just want to say it was a great convention. I had a really good time. And I look forward to going again next year, and hopefully I will see all of you there next year. And I heard really good things about DesignerCon. I did not get the opportunity to go to DesignerCon this year, but I will be going next year. And from all the photos that I saw online, that show looked amazing as well. So check that show out also. And I just want to give a shout out to the fine folks over at the Animation Network podcast. Had an opportunity to say hi to Jeff Sornig, who stopped by CTNX. Got to take a selfie with him. That was a lot of fun. And thank you so much for featuring me in your recent newsletter. And thank you for your well wishes on my new job. I really appreciate that. So I'm going to be starting that job soon. I really look forward to telling all of you more about it. So stay tuned for that. And make sure to check out their podcast, The Animation Network, over on iTunes. They've been a big supporter for me. And they've been an inspiration to me, and I know that all of you out there will love listening to their show as well. And speaking of awesome things, so now we're on to our main event. I am very excited today to present part one of my interview with my former teacher, Scotland Barnes. Scotland is an awesome guy. He is just a master at art. You may have seen his art online. It is fantastic. He is currently a storyboard artist for Disney Television on The Lion Guard. Previously, he worked on Elena of Avalor. He's also done freelance work for Warner Brothers and Cartoon Network. 
He's taught so many courses at the Academy of Art University, you can hardly count all of them. He is one of the hardest working professionals in animation who I have ever had the pleasure of meeting, and I know that you're going to get a lot out of what he had to say today. So without further ado, I present episode 33, Interview with Scotland Barnes, part one. Hi, Scotland. How are you? Hey, how's it going? How are you doing, doing Angela? Doing really yeah. good. So thank you so much for coming today. This is mm-hmm. really exciting having you here. Tell us about you, like where you're from, how you got started, all that good stuff. Okay, so way back in high school, I wanted to at first be what I thought was going to still be around, which was comic strips and newspapers. Mm-hmm. And then even by the time I was getting out of high school, I was kind of realizing that was a dying profession. It was getting very narrow. But I knew I really liked drawing. So I went around to a bunch of different schools, like in my junior year at high school, and I was looking at a lot of different colleges. And that's when ultimately I decided to go to State College to Cal State Long Beach for the illustration program. And, uh, you know, while I was there, I did a lot of other stuff besides just art. I did a lot of, you know, history classes, which is how I can ramble on about all that stuff for mm-hmm. so long and drive people nuts. <laughs> And I graduated like in, I think it was uh, two th- yeah, 2003 mm-hmm. with my BFA in illustration. And, uh, but then th- that was also another time when the dot-com bubble had only burst like just a few years before that. Mm-hmm. So, and then illustration itself wasn't exactly the easiest thing to get into. So for like a couple, about a year and a half, I was just like kind of floating around. I was still living with my folks, working at Barnes & Noble, and... I then got a new flyer from the academy and I had a friend who had gone there. I was taking classes even after Long Beach at a local community college and I was learning a little bit about Maya and animation there. But I was always still drawing in all my computer classes that I was taking there at a local community college. And ultimately what ended up happening was like she recommended I meet with Sherry Sinclair. And so when I went up for like just this day tour of the academy, I actually met with Sherry and I showed her a lot of my stuff from what I was doing at Long Beach. And then, you know, that kind of got me all propelled into going into the Academy of Art in San Francisco. And primarily I went there just to work with Sherry because she was like the only one who kind of made sense to me. Mm -hmm. So that was like why I went there and mostly like why when I pursued my graduate work there at the academy for animation I mostly just stuck with Sherry for the most part although I did take classes like from a lot of other people but a lot of it was with her so yeah then when I got done with that that's when basically again another kind of round of layoffs and all of that but towards the end of my time at the academy I met with Allison Mann at Nickelodeon and that's when I got in as an intern it took like three or four times of applying. Oh, wow. And I got in, of course, the whole secret to getting into a lot of intern programs is don't apply for summer. I mean, apply because you never know when it'll happen, but apply for those other semesters when people aren't really thinking about applying, like Mm -hmm. fall and spring. And so I got into one of the spring ones. And so that was my first real experience actually being in an animation studio. And the, the big thing that changed when I went to Nickelodeon was to realize like, Oh, there are two character designers, which is what I originally thought I wanted to be. I, want, I thought I was like, oh, I was going to do character designs. Everybody, like, it looks so cool. You put out these sketchbooks. And then ultimately it was like, wait, there are maybe two character designers on a show, but then there are like 12 or 
however many of storyboard people and the storyboard people have to draw everything there's like if you want to be able to handle everything all aspects of a show like storyboarding and and so that was where i started just going around to the different productions in between stealing a bunch of donuts <laughs> and uh and just getting as many story tests from people as i as i could and i interned on the show the mighty b the very very first season okay. right when that thing was getting started and you know everybody on that crew was really helpful in terms of like kind of you know, letting me know or learn about things, particularly like Louis Del Carmen, uh, Octavio Rodriguez. Those guys were like some of the go-to guys who kind of gave me a lot of information along with one of the creators of the show, Eric Weiss. And he was really helpful in terms of like giving me information. Those guys kind of helped me like re kind of tool my education as I was finishing up at the, at the Academy in terms of like just kind of giving me points of where to go. Okay. But even then, it was still like there just wasn't enough time mm -hmm. to, to change my whole thing. And also, like, that would have meant like changing my entire graduate project. So I kept it character design based for my projects so that I could still graduate on time. But then after that, I was just realizing it was just like the portfolio was still all over the place. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, when I graduated, that's when the house and everything had burned down in the fires of 2007. What house? Uh, my house. Oh, uh, my my, oh phone, my, my family's whole, the whole what? farm and everything where I grew up down in San Diego and where I was heading back. Finally, like as after years, because as a kid, I was always growing up with wildfires all the time because I grew up out in the middle of nowhere, farmlands, hills, country. And it just finally happened. So it was kind of like, you're done and there's nothing. Oh my gosh. Oh yeah. wow. I so, had no idea your whole house yeah, the whole thing. The only thing I had was the two suitcases that I had gone back to the academy with. So getting out and then ending up in this rental house that the insurance companies put us up into for about uh, about two years. And then I was down there in San Diego trying to get started again. I still had a lot of my artwork, but a lot of the stuff I was doing for my graduate project actually burned in the fire. Oh. So that was something that Sherry and Chris Armstrong, of course, knew when I was going through the whole thing, which was that, hey, there's like, here's a bunch of sketches, but like a lot of it is gone. <laughs> oh, man. Um, so again, like once again, like just starting over purely from scratch and... I ended up going back to Barnes and Noble. I was also doing caricatures uh, at Legoland and stuff like that. So that was my like my one of my first ones. And then going to uh, Ron Lemon's little school, Studio Second Street, at the time with his wife uh, Vanessa Lemon. And so I was again taking more and more classes just to keep rebuilding and rebuilding. So I was always that thing is like. I was during that whole time just getting so much conflicting advice as to what to do. Oh. And, you know, it was probably like the hardest time was just trying to figure out how to retool or what to build everything into and it not being clear if it was going to be storyboarding, if it was going to be character design. Mm -hmm. So ultimately what ended up happening was uh, Julian Meyer, as you know, like yeah. got in touch with me and I ended up coming back to the Academy this time as a lab tech and then I started getting a little few freelance jobs on the side as well as like then being back in the academy and then being able to still make use of all the academy's resources as a lab tech but then still then being able to do my own thing and so eventually like Lisa Barrett co-head of the illustration department got me 
into teaching all the entry-level Photoshop classes, along with a bunch of other people, and then that kind of just kept going and going, and that was how I was getting by, was being a lab tech, being a part-time teacher, doing freelance jobs. And then eventually what happened was I got that a job at a social game studio, which eventually folded, like all of them. And I had another freelance job for another social game company that also then folded, which was so the whole thing. So that was at the time when, you know, everybody's like, oh, this Facebook social game thing is going to be the next big craze. Yeah. And it was like, they'd be around for six months. Maybe you got lucky in some place, be around for five years. Some places were were really big and then like in 2012 bam all of it gone again oh, you know so everybody got laid off and then again i went back to the academy only now i had a lot more credentials and uh then i got like a freelance job with warner brothers actually doing storyboards for them i had had a few other minor storyboard jobs and things like that and then there was a really weird case where i had a storyboard job for Cartoon Network, but Cartoon Network Asia. How did you, okay. Yeah. How did you get a job with Cartoon Network Asia as opposed to Cartoon Network Burbank, which is right here? Right, right. You would think that would how it would work, but because yeah. the studio that was making it was in Australia and it was for the Australian market and therefore part of the whole umbrella of Cartoon Network Asia, which I had no idea about. But again, it was a case of a former teacher of mine who was like, I can't do this job, you should do it. And then he passed my information along to the guys. And it was really weird because like the story supervisor was down here in LA, I was in San Francisco, the rest of the team was in Melbourne, Australia. And so we were having these Skype show up calls, you know, at seven at night. Wow. And then at the same time, I was now starting to teach, I had started teaching earlier, not only going back to illustration and teaching Photoshop, but then I was also teaching for Sherry now okay. in the animation department. And that's when I started taking over more and more of those classes. So like when I was doing the Warner Brothers job, I was teaching like something like six classes plus working full time uh, for Warner Brothers there for like two months. And then when I was doing the Carter Network thing, I was still teaching like three classes, one of which was a six hours class. And so I just remember back in that day, those days, I think back now that here I'm at Disney television, it's so much more calm. I don't have nearly as many headaches. I don't drink near as much coffee anymore as I used to. It's really kind of crazy to realize like just how insane it used to be. And I was completely at home in this kind of craziness that I was living in because it was like, I learned if you want to get entry-level teaching jobs, uh -huh. one, always teach in the morning classes. Nobody wants them. So if you can get there and be there at 7 or 8.30, you can get that job. Okay. And that's, again, like how I started making sure I paid all of my bills was doing all the morning classes because nobody wants the morning class. Okay. And then once everybody's, like, confident that you're, you, know, you know what you're doing, then it's like they'll throw anything at you. So that makes a huge, huge difference when you're the person who – can do the job when no one else wants to do that job okay yeah you know as time went on eventually like i was just doing my own thing there and i was getting to the point where i was teaching like six or seven classes per semester for the academy wow then eventually again another friend passed my stuff on to at disney television for land of avalor and then of course sherry knew who was in charge which was Elliot Bohr, and uh, Elliot then brought me on board. 
And so that's what I've been doing that now. And then when we just, you know, finished up on Elena, then I jumped on to Lion Guard. Okay. So it's been just constant here. Yeah, that's, yeah. we're going to unpack all of that because that's, that's really impressive. I mean, you've done a lot of work. You work really, really hard with very little sleep and you just, you just go and go and go and you do a lot of stuff and it's all, I mean, I've seen your work obviously because I was mm -hmm. in your class and I've also seen all the stuff that you're doing on your websites and your work is great and it's really consistent too. Like, I don't mm -hmm. see anything of yours. It's like, ah, this one's kind of off or this one's off. No, like across the board, you can tell that it's work that you're doing and it's good. And so, well, thankfully yeah. now that the fire went through, it kind of erased all of the bad drawings <laughs> oh, for the stuff. Like you will never know. You will never <laughs> see all the terrible drawings that I used to have from when I was like in high school and stuff like that. Okay. So the secret is just get rid of all the evidence that anything was ever not good. Yeah. So well, like, I mean, there, there's that like advantage to it. It just wipes the whole slate clean. I mean, there's actually this amazing part where it's like, yes, you've lost everything. But on the other hand, you don't have that pile of mail every day just staring you in the face for all that paperwork that you used to have just sitting around it's now all gone oh man and it's an oddly liberating feeling when everything's mm. gone Where, i mean you had to have been upset though for at least a little while like when did that shift when did it go from oh my gosh i'm you know i'm glad my family's okay but i have lost everything everything's gone i have to start from scratch i have two suitcases when did that shift happen where you thought, no, wait, this could be a good thing? Well, I mean, that's one of the weird things is like, I know like some people who know me get kind of an irritated because, you know, I have a fairly sarcastic and rather dark sense of humor. Yes. <laughs> and, and so kind of having this kind of gallows sense of humor, it was actually pretty quick. And that's not to say that you don't have these moments when you suddenly realize, oh, wait, I hate to have that. And then you're like, oh, crap. There are things like that that, that happen every once in a while and you talk to anybody who's gone through losing everything whether it be a fire or a hurricane or anything like that mm -hmm. you just have to move on but then you'll have those moments where all of a sudden something will trigger something and then you'll remember oh i used to have this or we used to have that and then you know the other thing that you that's weird is when you no longer have photo albums or things like that it gets hard to remember some things from times because without that stuff it's really hard to remember that stuff. So, uh, you know, as much as people can knock on consumerism without objects, it can sometimes be hard to remember the past. You no longer have a trail that informs people of who you used to, who you were, where you came from. All that is going to be gone. But you rebuild it and you can find new things. You know, it's kind of funny. Like, again, I went back to work for Barnes Noble, so I was able to get back a lot of the books that I had lost. And we were insured, so a lot of things, in a way, got better for my family because of the fire. It cleaned up a lot of legal problems that I knew eventually I, me and my brother were going to have to face. But because of the fire, a lot of them got settled. Oh, wow. So, you know, it's, a, it's always this paradoxical thing. You know, you on one hand, a lot of bad stuff did happen, but there are a lot of good results that could come out of it. But, you know, on the other hand, I saw other families where that did not happen. Some of them were broken by it, and they just had to leave. For my family, it just worked out that in a lot of ways, it improved things for us. But then we still do have those moments where you're like, oh, we used to have that. That was something that we, you know, we, we lost. And so there are a lot of things like that that you know, are just there. Yeah. Mm. 
that's really deep. But that's that's good that you were able to come back from that though and be like, all right, well, then let's get started here. And then also, I mean, you graduated at the peak of recessions. Yeah, that, several that times. With, that's happened with me as well at the, the same periods of time. So, you know, and then, you know, your your plan was, I'm going to go into art. I'm going to do character design. I'm going to do comics. Wait, there's no comic industry. Fine, I'll do character design. Wait, the economy is now crap. What do I do? How did you keep going from that? Because some people, if that happens, some people quit. You know, they just decide, you know what? Forget it. This dream is dead. I'm just going to go sell insurance or do whatnot, not to knock people that sell insurance, but just I'm going to do something non-artistic. Mm-hmm. So what was it inside of you where you were like, no, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to get this to work. Well, I never really worried about the art aspect. It was more of just like, you just got to find something to keep going. And I was still, regardless of where the job was, you know, because I had a lot of retail and manual labor jobs when I was going through Long Beach, I was working at a recycling center. I worked night shifts at Target unloading semi-trucks, two of them usually in a night or three when we got to the holidays, God oh, help wow. us. Then, uh, you know, and at Barnes & Noble, I did almost every job in that store at four different ones, actually. And, uh, you know, there are probably people who had even longer histories, but it's just like, you know, then in my downtime, I would still be drawing. And, you know, that's... I think the big difference is I know a lot of people who I've seen, especially when I was teaching, where it's like they're not necessarily in love with the art or the process of making the art. I mean, some people really get jazzed on the final finish, but if you're not in love with the process Mm -hmm. of doing stuff, then you're not really going to want to stick around. You're in it for the the glory, the result. You have to love uh, the struggle itself. And the thing that really irritated me was the fact that I wasn't getting like really good answers from people when it came to my portfolios as they developed. I couldn't figure out for the life of me on the critical feedback. And that would irritate me and it would create this kind of nagging question is like, well, what do they mean? What does this mean? What is that? You know, and that's where I think consequently then when I was teaching was like, I didn't want to give any of my students that conflicted, you know, vague device that... Mm -hmm a lot of instructors or other artistic art pros would give me, you know, where it it would be too touchy-feely or it would be too contradictory or they would use vague terms about things. And I hated that. So a lot of times those sort of things kept egging me on. And, you know, again, like I really just like drawing. I mean, the weird thing today, I mean, now is, you know, I draw all day long at Disney and then when I get done at the end of the day i still want to draw but i can't turn over the engine as you as easy as i used to but then when i was teaching because it was like demos all day and then you just kind of kept going because there'd be nagging questions of like uh, that explanation didn't go that well in class so i wanted to figure out a better way and if i created a new visual for it maybe that would help explain it mm-hmm. and things like that but it's like i could just keep going if it wasn't for the fact that you know as you get older your body keeps being tired <laughs> And I'm not drinking as much coffee anymore, so that probably has a lot to do with it. Mm-hmm. No, but that's really good. And I appreciate the advice. And so did I know, like, Aaron and Shannon, like, we all took your classes, too. Mm-hmm. And it was, I mean, it actually taught us something. And I'm not mm-hmm. just saying that to say it here because you're sitting here with me. Like, I actually learned something in your class because some of my <clears> classes were really good and some of them were <clears> not great, you know? And we actually got something out of it. Like, you had 
so many handouts, which I still have all of them, you know? They actually still work. It wasn't stuff where it's like, well, I'm done with college, hooray, chucking this. No, yeah. I still hold on to all of that. No, that was the weirdest thing, because like, when I was first going to school at Long Beach State, you know, and this is not to knock state programs, because it was really great. Like, there was a lot of stuff that I learned at Long Beach, but so much of that stuff was just the beginning, the beginnings of learning a lot of stuff. And because it's state, and depending on which state program, at the time, they just didn't have enough life drawing classes. And, you know, you, you would have to go and look elsewhere to get some of that stuff. And now it's way better from what I've seen from people coming out of there is that they just have way more materials available largely because of how everything's improved in terms of getting the information out because of the internet. But Mm -hmm. back in 2000 to 2003, a lot of that information just wasn't as readily available to, to get. I mean, I still laugh about that the only place at the time when I was going to school, if I wanted to get a copy of Frank and Ollie's Illusion of Life, uh-huh. I actually had to go to Disneyland what? to place in there because the book was out of print for many years. Huh. And I would have to go, because it was the only place I could find it unless I could find like a garage sale, which I never did. I never found a garage sale that would have the Illusion of Life. And I didn't even know about that book until one time I went to Disneyland and I saw it there and I was like, what is this? And then the lady was very nice and it was this old raggedy copy that was behind one of the counters and it was for display only. It was their only copy. And I must have went back three or four times just to Disneyland just to look at the thing. Whoa. You know? Wow. And, you know, and that's when I learned it was out of print and I couldn't get a copy of it. Uh, it was also the same thing for the Preston Blair book for a long time was I used to just get the little single couple of sheet copies that would be made or be at an art store that Walter Foster's would make into these mm-hmm. smaller pamphlets. But then to get the thicker $25 book that you can now just get on Amazon, yeah. it was like I couldn't get that when I was first going to school or nobody knew about that. Mm-hmm. And at the time, also like at Long Beach, again, I was in the illustration program. So the kind of thought was like, oh, you're trying to be like, Norman Rockwell and that was like the dream for a while until I realized like I'm not I am not a good painter the the painting and all that and getting better at color that has been a long long journey on that one I mean I've gotten way better from where I was at least now I understand how it's terrible (laughs) but when I was first trying it was just like uh, it was so different being in that last little bit of analog stuff mm-hmm. and the internet just getting started and we were all jazzed about oh man you got a zip disk oh the 250 250 <laughs> megabyte disk woo you know but a lot of it was just you know getting that information and then now it's like you can go online and find so much more than there used to be the trouble now is deciphering what is the quality of the information Ah. because now it's just out there and there's like you know when you go on there and you find these demos or people who are doing it Mm -hmm. not everybody necessarily has the best way of explaining the stuff or uh i just got this one perspective book really really great the explanations in it are fantastic and the drawings are terrible looking oh no but the basics that it's describing are correct Mm -hmm. but visually it just looks kind of like mud because it just isn't, you know, the the people who were drawing it, uh, I don't know if it's the rep- reproduction, but like it looks like they're using marker and it just did not translate that well to the page. Mm-hmm. And that sometimes happened because that's part of the whole 
print thing. Yeah. You know? So, yeah, like the biggest problem I think today is just deciphering what is good information and what is not and what means more for fine art, atelier sort of fine art versus cartooning. And even in animation, we have so many different little groups. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, we would have people in, you know, in our class where some people want to do 3D. Well, you don't necessarily have to be the greatest draftsman to be a 3D animator. Yeah. And if you want to be in, say, 2D animation, where in 2D animation do you want to be? Do you want to be more the cartoony side? Do you want to be more the action adventure side? There are drawing basics they all share, but then everybody has slightly different pushes. There are people in each one of these kind of genres or drawing styles that everybody needs to know of, who's influenced who. Mm-hmm. And that just takes forever to, to figure out. But now because of online, you know, you, you can go on there, find a lot of that stuff and go down these various rabbit holes to get the stuff. But it takes just so long now to get that information. Yeah. And how do you feel like... Are you happy about that or frustrated about that? And I ask because, like, for you, you know, it was really tough to get this information. And you had to really, re- you know, if you want to do this, you had to fight for it. I mean, you had to go to a theme park multiple times to see a book, mm-hmm. you know. So when you're seeing, you know, your, your students now or the students you used to have in school and it's just so readily available, did that make you happy? Or was it frustrating to you to see, like, how they were using that information or not using Oh, it was frustrating. I mean, I think part of the reason why I stuck around and kept doing so many things was I remember when I was in Barbara Bradley's class and I would just get these terrible grades from her. It was probably the hardest class I ever had was with was with Barbara. And I just remember there was this time where I was just looking at my work and I had spent all night. I had not slept the, the whole night getting this thing done. The whole week it felt like. And... There was just this thing of like, I don't care. I'm going to beat that old woman. <laughs> I'm not going to let her win. You know? Uh, not that she... I, I didn't matter one way or another. But there's just this thing um, where if I fail, maybe I won't come back to it right away. But it doesn't mean I haven't forgot. <laughs> and, and I will figure out a way some point to get back at it. But uh, I'm very much somebody who was like, all right, well, that didn't work. I'm going to take a strategic moment back, reevaluate, and eventually I will try again. So it's an obsessive kind of white whale mentality. I mean, that's probably one of the reasons why, like in a lot of the story classes I was teaching, I'd always bring up Captain Ahab because I could identify. Yeah. That was pretty good. No, but I think that's good because, I mean, it's hard. It's mm-hmm. hard getting in. I mean, I'm still trying to do it. A lot of people I know are still trying to do it, and you did it. And so it's one of those things where it's just like, how did you do it? And you did it because you really, 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 really hard. Well, it's no, working like, really hard and, and, and being ready. Mm-hmm. Uh, like Stephen King in his book on writing has a really great analogy about it, where it's like, for him, it was like, you, you had to write every day because that meant you showed up at the bus stop. Nobody knows when the bus is going to show up, but eventually it will be there. But if you're not drawing every day, in effect, being at the bus stop, you're not going to get picked up. And that's that's where, again, like I think a lot of people will get sucked into the whole mentality of like, oh, I have to be at the studio. I have to be at this place. I have to be at that place. It's like, I, I could have cared less which studio I ended up at. Disney was like not necessarily the one I thought I would be at. I came up like at the time of 
you know, all the action adventure stuff that they were doing there at Cartoon Network. And I was very much drawing in that sort of vernacular, that style that they were doing at that time. And I think a lot of that still stuck around along with a lot of stuff that I saw at Warner Brothers. But it didn't really matter. I just wanted to draw that stuff. I didn't necessarily even necessarily worry about getting into the studios. I wanted to because I knew that would help pay for everything. And yeah, you do learn about acquiring a lot of debt or you don't necessarily have to these days but when i was first going through it was kind of like well that's part of the game and uh you know debt's not necessarily something i i I know a lot of people get all upset about that Mm -hmm. but on the other hand it's like if you know how to handle the debt if you learn how to handle it it's not that terrifying because realistically at some point everybody has to acquire debt there's almost no way around it to be totally debt free there are ways to be very badly off in debt and have no way out of it but as long as you understand the rules of how debt works and what your options are that's where it's different and so like to achieve you know this artistic thing i did have to learn a lot about financial acumen to kind of help it along that didn't always meant that it was easy or fun or not frustrating but one thing to keep in mind, even, you know, when you're a student is, and you may have a lot of student debt, is like, well, nobody's going to take away your education. That's the terrible thing when you have a car or you have a mortgage. They can repossess those. Yeah. But it's not like the government's going to come bracing down the door and, you know, try to suck out something out of your brain. Yeah. You know, in a sci-fi novel or if you're a real extreme conspiracy theory person, you might believe some of that stuff. But, you know, <laughs> they can't take that stuff away from you. Okay, yeah. let's talk about education for a bit, because, mm-hmm. I mean, you went to college, you went to grad school, you taught at the university level, but now there's, you know, now there's online classes, which did not exist before, because there, mm-hmm. there was no online, and now you can do, you know, like, Concept Design Academy, and, like, schools, and all these different kinds of things, so how do you feel about those kind of things compared to, like, a brick-and-mortar school? Do you think they're just as good? Do you think they're good alternatives? Do you think there's room? It always depends so much on the students. I mean, that's where, and uh, I mean, I've gone to both. Mm -hmm. I I took a lot of classes in between at the smaller online schools and also a lot of mom and pop kind of atelier schools, community colleges. I was really fortunate back in high school to have actually involved art teachers. I went to ROP drafting classes after high school too. So a lot of those things, like I just kept taking classes and it all kind of eventually kind of tied together. But I did notice that, you know, it depends on different ones. I've had some online classes that are really, really great. uh, And I can't stop recommending some of them. And then others where I'm just like, eh, it's kind of just, you know, uh, a by the numbers one. I hate it when I have a teacher who his class is more about, oh, it's story time. Let me tell you these stories and stuff like that. And then you actually don't get any information about what the class is supposed to be about. Mm-hmm. You just, and, and that's where, you know, and students sometimes trigger it themselves. Like they want to hear the stories oh. and it takes away from class time. Yeah. And I've seen that. I mean, I've used that strategy myself. You know, you got a headache in the morning, you're in the class, you don't want to pay attention. You're like, Oh, let me just ask this teacher about something that happened in their past that'll hopefully trigger them to go into story time and I don't have to actually do the assignment. <laughs> and students will do that. But then some teachers 
some who are really famous, they're not actually teaching you, you know, anything. On the other hand, I've had others who are really famous mm-hmm. and they teach you a lot. Yeah. So it, it's really hard. I don't know if, if it's perfect to say one way or the other. Mm-hmm. And every school is really different. Like yeah. some people I know really are down on the for-profit model schools, yeah. like what we went to. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, there are advantages that those for-profit schools have that, you know, public universities or nonprofits don't have. And it's always like, there are always trade-offs. And that's the thing where the worst thing I see is like students who'd make uninformed decisions. Mm -hmm. They think of like, oh, if I go to X school, I'm going to come out and be X or something like that. You know, like they think that they, they see it as a linear line. It never works that way. Mm -hmm. I mean, for a few people it does, but you know, I've seen people succeed at sometimes the worst places. Mm. It just really depends. But the trouble I always see is that a lot of people go into schools with huge misconceptions. Mm-hmm. And sometimes where you can be really critical of the schools is that they do nothing to correct those mis- those mis- uh, those misunderstandings of what the job really is yeah. and stuff like that. And and that's where hopefully your instructor cares enough to tell people it's like, no, what you are doing is wrong. (laughs) Your idea of what this eventually is going to be is not working. Mm. On the other hand, I've seen some who just, you know, you just get through and it don't matter. And, And, you know, it varies all over the place. The real thing to really think about when you're going to school is that you're not taking this class to be with this person so that this will happen. You are, you are investing time. Uh, that's what you're really buying. Like, So when you think about your student debt, you should be thinking about it as like, this is the amount of time I have paid for to uh, to turn myself into skilled labor. Because that's the big problem is like animation, it is a highly intensive labor job, but it is a skilled labor job. It's not like just anybody can come off the street and just do it. But you hear that a lot from a lot of people who keep thinking that somehow there are these unskilled labor jobs that they should have ready access to. Unfortunately, the economy is not that way. It is mm-hmm. gearing more and more towards skilled labor. So without an education, and it doesn't necessarily have to be from a four-year or five-year institute. It has to be just for something. You have to be skilled at something because that's going to earn you a higher income. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the, the, the misunderstanding is like, you want to know exactly what your goal is going into it. And some schools can help you with that. Some schools cannot. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you don't need any of those schools and you can do it completely wrong. Because I've worked with some people who are completely self-taught. Wow. They didn't have to go through any of that stuff. Some were lucky to just hit the right place at the right time. Uh, one guy I know uh, from Nickelodeon, he just hit it at the right time. Came right out of high school, was a decent draftsman, had the right stylistic approach. But he has kind of just this one note of drawing, but it's carried over and he can keep doing it. And I'm pretty sure if he applied himself, he could do other styles if he really wants to. Yeah. No, that's really, really good. Mm -hmm. And getting into teaching as well, I mean, besides copious amounts of coffee. Yeah. How did you manage your time between teaching six classes and making time to do your own artwork did you just have the world's largest spreadsheet to like manage everything like how did you discipline yourself 
I never had quite the you know Excel spreadsheet sort of thing go on. I'm a post-it note person. <laughs> and as you saw, like there's a lot of post-it notes all over the place. All of my notes are based on post-it okay. notes. And so like at the end of every class, I'd have to write something down or during class hour, I'd write something down. I eventually, especially when I was teaching, I did have kind of a, a system of paperwork that I started creating, especially by the end. And I had a master folder. I had a per class folder on my computer. I had everything cut up. And teaching a lot of those entry-level Photoshop classes for, for Lisa Barrett and Chuck Pyle at Illustration, the way it was set up was very much modeled like on the online classes. There was a set curriculum mm -hmm. for it. Because the class had to be handed off to so many other people, it had to have the shared information to make sure it went with it. <laughs> And one of the things that was really great when I was teaching those classes, it was a great kind of training ground to learn like, okay, every day you have an agenda. There are these things that we have to get done. Here's what the homework. So it was a great, like there are those great classes when you are learning how to teach that are very cookie cutter. Mm -hmm. Students usually hate them, but usually you're learning like basic skills in there. Yeah. And, you know, in this case it was Photoshop, which everything revolves around Photoshop and it helps you kind of maintain that kind of discipline when you go to another class because then you know like, okay, it's 15-week schedule. I need something to do about every 20 minutes because that's usually about the attention span of somebody. Mm -hmm. Then we need to make sure there's always activities to be doing on each time. So like when eventually I got into a lot of the life drawing classes and character design classes that I was teaching... I could break up the time very easily. And I did have, like, if you ever, I don't know if you remember my legal pads that I had in class. Yeah. I had everything marked out eventually by, like, by every 20 and 10 minutes. Okay. That's why, like, the class was very much like, boom, boom, mm -hmm. boom. We kept going and so on. And I knew exactly yeah. what we needed to achieve. But that's also how I learned myself. I know other people who can kind of do things through feelings. <laughs> Yes. And and yeah, and it, it's like if they spend the whole class talking about it, even though you didn't do anything else, how they felt and the emotion they conveyed, some people really do learn that way. I mean, it, it sounds completely insane to me, mm -hmm. but I'm very much somebody who's like, no, 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 we're going to take the engine, we're going to strip it all down, we're going to take about every single little part in here and put it together piece by piece by piece. And that was very much like, what I wanted in a class and not everybody necessarily gave me that mm -hmm. Sherry Sinclair, Ron Lemon. I really got that from them. And uh, even though sometimes they're like both like so jumbled because they're dealing with like 20 or 40 students. And then when I was teaching, you're dealing with 20, 40 students. I can understand why they would sometimes be so jumbled mm -hmm. in their mindset sometimes. And that's just part of the job. Yeah. That's really good. And that flies in the face of, I think, what most people consider art and artists. Because a lot of times you think of artists like, oh, it just sprung forth from their brain and la-la-la-la-la. And that's actually one of the reasons why I wanted to get into animation was because it's, to me, it seemed like a very clear cut. You do this to do this to make this. Yeah. Because other types of art, I was like, this is way too touchy-feely and I can't. I just can't. I yeah. can't know. But animation was like, oh, this is more of a technical and trade skill with emotion. It's like yeah. emotion's like 
the added layer, but, yeah. but below that... All the, the craft is there to serve the emotion. Yeah. You know, and it is readily explainable by somebody who understands what it is. Mm-hmm. Because, and it's the same thing with a lot of computer classes, too. Like, you can't really be touchy-feely your way through Photoshop without knowing what all the tools are. Right. Or in Maya, you know, you can't really get through that program without a diagram breaking down step-by-step at first what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Because those programs are so layered. There are so many different ways to do everything in there. And, and even then, when you get into tr- really traditional fine art, atelier sort of uh, stuff, like the old French academies, it, it is very disciplined. And, and so that's something like, it is in many ways like when you learn a sport, there are certain motions that you have to break down in order to lift the weight, throw the ball be able to hit a certain move. Same thing with with music, really classical music. Even things that people think are very intuitive or touchy-feely like right. jazz, there there is a strong mechanical component to it, but then how you're able to freeform break that up to make people not aware of the systematic sort of stuff that's in there, mm-hmm. uh, the formulas that you're relying on. And how you're able to play on those. Like, that's always a thing that people really misunderstand about the arts. And also, you know, we use this very nebulous term, art. Whereas, like, once you're in the arts, you you start to know, it's like, oh, no, 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 that person's doing definitely an illustration. What era of illustration are they doing? Oh, this person's a fine artist, but are they atelier sort of fine art? Academy sort of fine art? Are they more of the kind of, you know, what artists are they following? And is it postmodern, modern, all that stuff, yeah. impressionistic? There's so many different things that as you start getting it, the language gets much more specific about it. And, you know, that's what really irritates me about the media is because they just want to be like, all right, bam, here's this giant term. We're going to throw it on everything. So we're going to characterize everybody in this horrible, horrible, homogenous sort of, you know, idea that we all go around and are depressed about life and and are dark and brooding, <laughs> you know. Oh, we're so intense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wish you guys could. I mean, you guys are listening to the podcast. I wish you could see the, the hand motions you're doing with us. Yeah. Great. No, but that's true. And I remember for a long time, I remember wanting to be an artist, but being afraid that that meant, oh, I will then eventually go insane because all of my favorite artists growing up, they committed suicide. And I remember thinking, I don't want to commit suicide. Like, what, what's going to happen to me? You know? Yeah, I know. Like, uh... It doesn't happen too much in animation. Everybody's uh, around for, for the most part, a pretty long time, except for a few people who di- did die tragically, and it wasn't usually because they were depressed. So, yeah, I, I never really got that. And even then, it was always like, as a kid, especially in high school and stuff like that, I was always way more interested in the cartoonist. And it was funny because I just remember people who would mistakenly think that because I was always doodling, that I wanted to be Picasso or Van Gogh or those guys. And I was just like, I was not interested in what those guys did. Like, it took me years to really have an appreciation for especially Picasso. Mm -hmm. And even then, I still kind of think of him as somewhat of a charlatan. (laughs) You know, there are other people who I was always way more impressed with. I remember one day at the Long Beach Beach State uh, Library, I found the Smithsonian Collection of old comic strips and it was so awesome to go and see how much different styles and also how 
big and diverse the comic strips used to be. Because mm-hmm. you had something as crazy as Crazy Cat. Yeah. And then you had something as refined as, as Little Nemo in Slumberland with Windsor McKay. And it's like just visually so different. And yet they were in the same newspapers. And then you, you see it progress over time. And then you see what happens to that because the industry keeps relegating them to smaller and smaller pages and smaller and smaller panels. And a, a lot of that I learned through, of course, Calvin and Hobbes following Bill Watterson and being a huge fan of his stuff. And then that kind of led me back to Pongo, other ones, always a huge Peanuts fan, all of that. And of course, then it was also like comic books. And then when you get into comic books and you start really getting into that, and then you get back to the Jack Kirby's, the Steve Ditko's, the John Romita's, you know, all those guys, and you just learn all these different people. And then eventually you get to like the Jim Lee's and other guys out there who are the, the big names of today still. And it's all way, way different. But, you know, I didn't worry about the money aspect about stuff like how much would I make if I'm doing this. And that concludes part one of my interview with Scotland Barnes. Special thanks to Scotland for being on the show. Greatly appreciate it. And tune in next time for part two. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, please make sure to subscribe on iTunes and to leave a positive review. All of your reviews help more and more people to find out about the show. And thank you to everyone who has left a review thus far. I greatly appreciate it. And you can also support the show by visiting www.theanimatedjourney.com and clicking on the PayPal button. All of your donations go directly towards helping me keep the show up and running with web hosting costs and such. And also make sure to support our sponsors, Amazon.com, Audible.com, Loot Crate, and Blueberry Podcast Hosting. Amazon is your place to go to buy everything. And with Christmas right around the corner, you know that you'll want to shop there. Audible is your place to find the best in audiobooks. Loot Crate is where you'll want to go to get all of your geek and gaming gear. And Blueberry Podcast Hosting is the best place to go if you want to host your very own show. Every time you click on those banner ads and subscribe to one of those services or make your regularly scheduled purchases, a little bit of money comes back to the show. And it directly helps me to keep the show up and running. So thank you to everyone who has supported our sponsors. And you can also check out what's going on in the wonderful world of animation by visiting the Facebook page www.facebook.com slash the animated journey on tumblr it's the animated and on instagram and twitter you can follow the show at anim journey that's a-n-i-m-j-o-u-r-n-e-y and to see what i have been up to lately make sure to follow me on all of the social media channels i am listed as sketchy soul that's sketchysoul.com sketchysoul.tumblr.com on Instagram and Twitter it's at sketchysoul and on Facebook it's www.facebook.com sketchysoul so that concludes today's episode thank you all for listening and as always be encouraged and have a great day everybody bye